This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde on Jeff Bezos's vice-like grip over his own money. Journalist Stuart Heritage on the incredible new Netflix documentary, Pepsi, Where's My Jet? And finally, writer Simon Hattonstone meets Letitia Wright as she reprises her starring role in Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Before we begin, just a warning, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, the Amazon founder Jeff Bezos says giving money away is really hard. Luckily, points out Marina Hyde, poor people do far more of it than he does. Read by Evelyn Miller. How bracing to wake up on Monday and read that Amazon founder Jeff Bezos had donated $100 million to Dolly Parton's charitable endeavours at his own Courage and Civility event. Sarcastic air quotes, my own. The many, many news reports about this act suggested it was a truly incredible sum from the second richest man in the world, who, according to recent estimates, gets richer by about $205 million dollars a day. Anyway, once I'd peeled myself off the ceiling, I got busy on the government's tax calculator. If you're on the median average UK salary, and you pay your taxes, your take-home pay is £72 a day. Looked at one way then, Jeff's benevolence would be the equivalent of donating £34.56 to charity. Have you ever donated 34 quid to charity? Do you pay your taxes? If so, you're actually being more generous than Jeff Bezos, who famously avoids almost all of his. And yet, where's your splashy news write-up in all the fine news outlets of the world? Where's your fawning TV interview? Why does no one refer to you as a philanthropist? 
We'll come to the obvious answers to those questions shortly. But for now, let's look at the stage-managed hoopla around these so-called Courage and Civility Awards. And yes, that title does make it sound like Jeff just demanded a warehouse operative bring him two inoffensive abstract nouns that were out of copyright. In fact, Bezos announced the initiative last year shortly after disembarking his little space rocket, possibly sensing a planetary disdain being levelled at the kind of guy who could put himself in zero gravity for four minutes, but couldn't figure out how to treat his workers properly. Anyway, the Courage and Civility Awards are now an actual thing, and alongside Sunday's self-effacing ceremony, and his attempt to piggyback on the lifelong altruism and extraordinary charitable service of HRH Dolly Parton, Bezos granted an exclusive sit-down with CNN. First impressions? Jeff interviews like a chat tool, and resembles your local area's most uncompromising and least booked 58-year-old Vin Diesel lookalike. Having long refused to sign the Giving Pledge, a promise by many of the world's richest individuals to donate most of their wealth to charitable causes, Bezos announced that he intends giving the majority of his money away in his lifetime, according to CNN. And yet, does he intend to do this? His answer, yeah, I do, feels somewhat vague and short on specifics. But taking Jeff at his word, I mean it from the bottom of the heart when I say, big fricking deal. Most people give a significant amount of their money away during their lifetime, via a little something we call the taxation system. I know. Where's our red carpet gala? I tell you what, next time our paychecks arrive... Why don't we all get our hair done and put on black tie or a big old dress and graciously twat our way down a red carpet going, you're most welcome for the cameras. According to what Bezos told CNN, philanthropy is really hard. It certainly seems to be for him. Do recall he was only dragged kicking and screaming to the giving a shit game, having spent years accruing billions before it was finally pointed out to him that not having some kind of philanthropic arm looked fairly abysmal. In 2017, Bezos asked Twitter users for ideas on how to help the world in the here and now, before embarking on a truly committed programme of ignoring every single one of them who suggested paying his workers properly and contributing fair tax. A year later, he actually uttered the words, The only way that I can see to deploy this much financial resource is by converting my Amazon winnings into space travel. That was the same year Amazon helped kill a Seattle tax on big firms to alleviate the homelessness crisis by threatening to pull a huge building project. The business and tech commentator, Scott Galloway, calls Bezos the mother of all welfare queens for the vast benefits he's drawn from public money and the tax breaks he remorselessly chases and demands. But of course, 
Jeff is the kind of widely acclaimed visionary who simply lacks the vision to realise that the first way to help is by paying people a fair wage and forking out your taxes like an ordinary person, and not by turning up to dole out charity after the event like some bastard god of the purse strings. Unfortunately, he's part of that specific billionaire class that believes they should be allowed to hypothecate almost 100% of their own vast riches in whichever direction they wish, because the exchequers of the world are just junior personnel, and they know better than all of them how to spend it. So yes, for Bezos, philanthropy is really hard. What he does, philanthropy, is much, much easier. Moving billions to non-profits you control, effectively awarding yourself tax breaks, buying media fawning with one of the lamest possible sleights of hand, these things, self-evidently, are a whole lot easier. What's hard to understand is why on earth we're still buying into this obvious bullshit from some of the most selfish people in the world. The poor give a far greater proportion of their money to charity than the rich. I don't mean to be uncivil, but what is courageous about letting Jeff Bezos pretend otherwise? That was... All hail Jeff Bezos, the philanthropist. The rest of us will just keep paying our taxes. By Marina Hyde. Read by Evelyn Miller. Next. When Pepsi came up with a tongue-in-cheek marketing ploy in the 90s, student John Leonard saw a loophole in the cola company's points for prizes promotion and sued for what he saw as rightly his. A Harrier fighter plane. Now, a new documentary tells the remarkable story. Stuart Heritage meets the protagonists to find out more. Read by Toby Williams. In 1996, PepsiCo, then known for creating the young, cool, carbonated drink of a generation, made an incredible mistake. The company had just launched its Pepsi Points scheme, in which customers could save Pepsi labels and redeem them against Pepsi-branded merchandise. 60 tokens would get you a hat, 400 and you'd get a denim jacket. But in the commercial accompanying the launch, Pepsi went further, joking that anyone who collected 7 million labels would be eligible for a brand new Harrier jump jet. The mistake? Pepsi forgot to add any small print, pointing out that it was a joke. That one oversight now forms the basis for a wildly entertaining Netflix series entitled Pepsi, where's my jet? It tells the story of John Leonard, a Washington State Community College student who decided to take Pepsi at its word. After quickly realising that buying 7 million cans or bottles of Pepsi would be prohibitively expensive, Leonard saw a disclaimer revealing that rather than collecting labels, consumers could buy Pepsi points for 10 cents each. A $23 million Harrier jump jet for just $700,000. That was the bargain of the century. Over four episodes, the show recounts one young man's determination to take on a multinational corporation to get what an advert had promised him. 
John had this kind of Spielbergian quality about him when he was younger, where it was just like anything is possible, recounts Andrew Renzi, the show's director, over a riotous four-way Zoom call with Leonard and Todd Hoffman. More on him later. I don't know if you've ever seen the film Being There, Renzi adds, referring to the Peter Sellers satire about a gardener who accidentally works his way into the corridors of power. But I had this thing in my head where John Leonard at 19 years old is Peter Sellers. Yeah, so that's pretty close to accurate, Leonard interrupts. Renzi sighs. I forgot to mention that John is opinionated, he says. Renzi was initially offered Pepsi, where's my jet, as a work of fiction. But after tracking down Leonard, by then in his mid-forties and working as a park ranger in Alaska, he realised that the truth would be more entertaining. It was a long time ago, Leonard continues, and I just kind of wanted to keep it back there as something funny that happened a long time ago. That changed when the Netflix series Tiger King became a lockdown hit, and people started looking for more weird historical stories to turn into documentaries. Various producers came sniffing around. There were some real schmucky people that would lay on this really thick, used car salesman, Hollywood type of thing. But Renzi sent me an email, and of all the different emails I got, it felt really sincere. It didn't seem like it was the same old thing of, you know, blowing smoke up your ass. But simultaneously, Todd and I had a conversation. He said something along the lines of, this is a cool story, it needs to be told, and it needs to be told by the right person. He said, when I die... I'd be happy to have this be on my epitaph. Now let's introduce Hoffman, the secret source of the whole crazed scheme. A charismatic millionaire, then in his forties, Hoffman had befriended Leonard on a mountaineering trip, and when Leonard realised he needed $700,000 to force a fighter jet out of a fizzy drink company, Hoffman was the first person he turned to. To everyone's surprise, Hoffman was keen. John brought this to me and told me the story, he recalls. We looked at the videotape of the commercial and I just kept looking at it over and over and over and going, that is absolutely a reckless ad put out there by a major corporation that knows better. After that point, the game was afoot. Pepsi's defence throughout was that the ad was clearly a joke. At one point during the series, a Pepsi spokesperson mentions that while millions of people watched the advert, only one person actually tried to redeem the jet offer. It is possible nobody else went as far as Leonard in their attempts to claim the prize, but he points out that he first heard of Pepsi points when a father at the Little League baseball team he coached mentioned he was part of a jet-buying consortium. Leonard was unique in being the only viewer who had access to Hoffman, a like-minded renegade with the funds to back it up. Leonard describes Hoffman as the math that Pepsi didn't do. They were counting on there being a ton of dreamers like me, but they just never figured a dreamer like me would ever have access to somebody that was willing to go on this crazy ride and actually would write the check. Making the series, I always had this guiding post of everybody needs a John and everybody needs a Todd, Renzi explains. And it is this relationship between two men of different generations who had a wild idea and saw it through that runs through the series like a golden cord. Even decades later, over Zoom, they are warm and familiar, crashing into each other's stories and finishing each other's sentences. 
I just love being connected with people like John, beams Hoffman. He looks all serious, and he looks conservative, but he's insane. He's certifiably insane. He holds a job, he has a beautiful family, he has a house and pays a mortgage and goes to work every day, but he's got some real mental things going on way outside the box. The climax of the story is easily googleable, but the journey there is about as crazed as its genesis. At one point, Michael Avenatti, later to find infamy as the lawyer of Stormy Daniels, pops up to help the fight against Pepsi, sharing a hotel room with Leonard in what is described as a planes, trains and automobiles road trip across the Midwest. Avenatti filmed his segments for the show under house arrest for attempting to extort Nike for up to $25 million. He has since been imprisoned for defrauding Daniels. But his participation in the case was a rare point of contention between Hoffman and Leonard. While Leonard developed a personal friendship with Avenatti, Hoffman rankled at his methods. I didn't think of him as a major part of our story, he says, when Avenatti's name is mentioned. You sense that Pepsi is still embarrassed by the skirmish. The fight for the jet did the company no favours whatsoever. At the time, it was still locked in the Cola Wars with Coca-Cola, a ruthless scrap for dominance that saw Pepsi introduce blind taste tests to prove its superiority to the world, and any slip-up could have been fatal. Here was a brand selling itself on how cool and youthful it was, but it responded to Leonard's claim by, spoiler alert, slamming him with teams of corporate lawyers. When TV companies saw what an open, guileless boy Leonard was, asking politely for his jump jet, he was suddenly everywhere. It was a terrible PR move from Pepsi, and Hoffman is still convinced that its self-inflicted damage lingers. John was the all-American kid, he said. He was the Pepsi generation. And that's kind of what's ironic, too. Pepsi blew a great opportunity to lasso this kid and say, look, we'll take you around the country in the Harrier jet for the next year. We'll pay you a million bucks. Instead of hiring lawyers and suing us, they could have actually done the right thing and said, this kid put the deal together. He rang the bell and he gets the prize, you know? Still, this all happened a quarter of a century ago. The world has moved on. Leonard and Hoffman have changed. As we wrap up, I ask if it's strange for them to revisit the distant past like this, knowing all the attention the show will bring. Over the years, I've been sensitive to it because even close people have said, well, you're an opportunist, Leonard explains. Lawsuits like this end up being compared to the McDonald's hot coffee case, the kind of ambulance chaser thing, and that hit me wrong. Looking back on it, it was opportunistic, absolutely, but that's not always a negative thing. And back then, I wholeheartedly thought that we were going to get the jet. What I struggle with today, he adds, is how can I have really thought that I was going to get the jet? I'm 48 years old now, and I'm now looking back on it like, what kind of dipshit were you, man? That was... Pepsi weren't counting on a dreamer like me, the student who sued a soft drink giant for a $23 million fighter jet, by Stuart Heritage, read by Toby Williams. We'll be back after this short break. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Shantae Joseph. I'm a writer and broadcaster, and I spend way too much time online. But now those years of scrolling are finally paying off because I'm hosting The Guardian's new pop culture podcast, In each episode, I'm going to get under the skin of the week's biggest stories. If you love pop culture and want to get into how it's shaping and impacting our lives, then you should join me every Thursday. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Out now. Bye. Welcome back to Weekend. Finally, Letitia Wright was a rising star of British indie films before Chadwick Boseman handpicked her for the Marvel blockbuster Black Panther. She talked to Simon Hattonstone about the impact of his death and how she turned her life around. Read by Evelyn Miller. This article includes offensive language around race. Elvis! Hey, Elvis! Letitia Wright calls enthusiastically. A waiter walks over. Elvis is my friend. Elvis, Simon, Simon, Elvis. Elvis and I introduce ourselves and he takes my order. Wow, what a coincidence, I say to Wright. A friend of yours working here. How long have you known Elvis? I just met him today. She laughs. I always try to connect with people. Did he recognise you? No, Elvis doesn't care who I am, he just cares if I'm a kind person or not. We meet at a restaurant in the Shard, London's famous spike in the sky. Her publicist refers to her as Tish, so I ask Wright if she prefers people to call her Letitia or Tish. Letitia, she says instantly, correcting my pronunciation. It's Letitia. I'm not surprised Elvis hasn't recognised her. When I first see Wright in her hoodie and cap, she looks tiny. Year seven, maybe, just off to secondary school. But she's actually a 29-year-old woman. And the longer you spend with her, the more you realise how striking her face is. Wright is a wonderful actor and a great chooser of parts. And we're here today to talk about three new ones. All of them winners. You could not get three more different movies than Aisha, The Silent Twins, and Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. In Aisha, she plays an asylum seeker. So quietly traumatised, she's barely there. The Silent Twins is the true story of two elective mutes who end up in the high-security psychiatric hospital Broadmoor 
after being bludgeoned with racist abuse in their early school days. And in Wakanda Forever, she reprises her role as scientist superhero Shuri. What makes this prolific output all the more impressive is that she is still grieving for the actor Chadwick Boseman, her fictional brother in Black Panther, and as close to a real brother as she's had in real life. I was devastated, as you can imagine. I've had to process it through therapy, she says. It's not like I had a two-year break to process it and then came back into the film. We had to start six months after Chad died. It's only later that I begin to understand the depth of her grief. Wright, who was born in Guyana, still has a hint of the accent in her voice. Her family came to the UK when she was seven, and she says her first experience of acting was at primary school in London soon afterwards. Not that she knew it at the time. I didn't want anybody to make fun of me, so I started to change my accent, and that's where acting started to seep in. When did she realise that was acting? When I started to grow up and learn all the accents, you realise, oh, you changed your accent to present yourself to be something different, or for people to believe you belong to a particular place when you don't. It was to combat the fact that I was different. How long did it take to fit in? A couple of years. Did it have the desired effect? She nods. The impact over time was that people stopped making fun of it. Right comes to a stop. I regret doing that now. As a kid, you don't know how special you are. I wish I hadn't done it. The funny thing is that while she wanted to hide her own accent, at school she met and befriended many children who also had foreign accents. Some were refugees and asylum seekers. This, she says, is where her interest in the issue comes from. It's something that, as a child, I observed before clicking on the TV and seeing what people were saying on the news. You go to school with people. One minute they're here, and the next, they're gone. And you're like, why? And you don't know how to communicate that as a kid. But when you grow up, you realise a kid got deported because they didn't get their papers. Did it happen to any of her friends? Yes. I know people close to me who have been in detention centres. And this is hard to witness as a child, a teenager, a young woman. Wright was an only child. Her mother is a teacher. Her father works in the agricultural business. She went to secondary school in Tottenham, North London, and, encouraged by amazing teachers, took up drama. At 16, she joined the part-time Identity School of Acting in South London, where she became close friends with the actor John Boyega. He told her he was hoping to be in international films and taught her how to dream big. By the age of 17, she had appeared on TV in Top Boy and Holby City. The film industry magazine Screen International recognised her as one of its 2012 Stars of Tomorrow, after her appearance in the British crime drama film My Brother the Devil, in which she played another character called Aisha. Things appeared to be going well for Wright, but then she suffered a deep depression and considered quitting. She says she had lost her values and sense of perspective. Wright partied and drank and tried to obliterate herself in work, but none of it helped. Her friend, the actor Malachi Kirby, 
who played Kunta Kinte in the remake of the TV series Roots, called her one day and said he knew she was in a bad way and that God had told him to reach out to her. Wright wasn't having any of it, but agreed to go along with him to an actor's Bible study. Her life was transformed. The depression lifted and her career soared. I ask how Christianity changed her. It gave me the centering I needed, the good foundation I needed, and it helped me to put in perspective what was important for me. Chasing something that is not tangible or not wholesome is not the way I want to go. If I was to pack all this up, I'd still be happy with my faith, the contentment I feel, and the connection to God. Had she been chasing unwholesome things? Yes, of course. We all chase things. You feel you need a better job, or better role, or more accolades, or more recognition. And I was chasing that. I had been chasing, 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 but feeling empty. I realised I don't have to chase that anymore. If I trust that God has a plan for my life, and I follow that, and trust I'm doing the right things, then if people feel it, they will. I just want my work to speak for itself. And I feel that's what Aisha does, and what Shuri in Black Panther does. Does she come from a religious family? My parents have always had faith, but it wasn't something we continually practised. I had to find what worked for me, and I found that Jesus worked for me. The more I prayed, the more I felt connected, and the less anxious. On her return to acting, she appeared in a number of memorable parts. In 2014, she played Amal in the musical drama Glasgow Girls, based on the true story of pupils who fought the Home Office to prevent their school friend being deported. In 2015, she starred in the moving Michael Caton-Jones movie Urban Hymn as Jamie, a volatile offender with an angelic voice. Wright was irresistible as Scotty, the slip of a thing who falls in love with and stalks a much older woman in Russell T. Davis's Banana. I tell her that I mentioned to Davis I was meeting her, and he told me he adored working with her. She's amazing, he texted. She was intense and devoted with the work, and kind of otherworldly. I had no idea what was going on in her head. She felt very special, but unknowable. You'd have marked her out for a lifetime of real, gritty Ken Loach films, so I'm amazed and happy she's a Marvel star. Wright lights up when I tell her what Davis said. Has she seen any Loach films? Yes, of course. Kez is one of my favourite films. He's excellent. He's one of the best. But rather than gritty realism, she's now best known for Black Panther. Has she always been into Marvel? I love what Marvel is doing with Black Panther, but in terms of being an avid reader of comic books, that was never me. Is she surprised to find herself playing a superhero? I'm surprised by the amount of people who know my name. I never compare it to what I do in terms of independent or art house films. I see them as the same, really, because I'm just going after a character that has meaning. And for me, Shuri has a lot of meaning. She has inspired so many young kids around the world, especially young black women, to enjoy and be proud of themselves in the STEM, science, technology, education and maths category of education. She's a character that so many young girls want to be. It's true. 
Shuri is the ultimate role model. Cool, gorgeous, funny, and the smartest person in the Marvel Universe. Bozeman handpicked Wright to play the part. What does she think he saw in her? I guess my heart. And my heart for him as my big brother, she says. She initially auditioned on tape and then did two screen tests. It was down to three girls, and after meeting him for the first time, it was clear that we connected. Did she tell him she'd only be in the film if her character was the smartest person on the planet? Wright laughs. It wasn't an ultimatum, but it was a big factor in taking the role. So if you'd just been a pretty passive princess, you wouldn't have been interested. That wouldn't be for me. But I definitely enjoy playing a princess who is really smart and can tell her brother what to do and have fun with him and be the innovator of technology for her nation. That's really inspiring. Was their close relationship in the film replicated in real life? Yes. He doesn't have sisters, but he would always say if he were to have one, it would have to be me, because I just connected with him and it was the way God wanted it to be. Did he share her belief? He definitely believed in God. He grew up a Christian and his brother was a pastor. At times, she still talks of him in the present tense. He definitely is a man of faith, but respectful of everyone's religion at the same time. Then she remembers and switches to the past. He carried an enormous amount of faith. When Boseman died of colon cancer at the age of 43 in 2020, the film world was left reeling. He had been diagnosed four years earlier, but had not made the information public. Wright still sounds traumatised today by his death. She says initially she couldn't believe it when she heard the news. Then she refused to believe it. She starts talking and barely pauses as she tells the story from start to finish. I was at home in my apartment in East London. I was by myself, I just woke up and saw an email saying my condolences, and I was like, my condolences for what? Then I clicked out of that email and just kept seeing Chadwick Boseman, Chadwick Boseman, Chadwick Boseman. I was like, what the hell's going on? I clicked on one and it was the PR team saying, do you want to write a statement? Statement? What's going on? And I went to my phone and I saw 50 calls back to back from different people. I was like, this is mad. So I just called Chad and his phone was ringing out. Then I called Daniel Kalua and I was like, bro, what's going on? And he was silent. And I was like, bro, you have five seconds to tell me this is not true. This is horrible. What's going on? And there was this dead silence. And I was like, I think this is true, but I'm just asking you to tell me that it's not and he didn't. His response was, Tish, where are you? Who are you with? And I was like, okay, you're not giving me the answer I need. I'm going to call Chad again. Daniel said, Tish, what are you doing? I said, I'm trying to call Chad. And he said, Tish, the family. And the second he said that, I just lost it. I was punching my apartment up. I was screaming. I was just so angered. I was like, bro, Daniel, this is not happening. But his silence spoke so loudly. And he just came immediately from where he was to comfort me. Wright finally comes to a tearful stop. She looks exhausted. 
I ask what the long-term impact of Bozeman's death has been on her. You don't know until something happens how it will affect you. You think you have time, and that's the thing I've learned. These things make you realise it's important to reach out to people you love. The amount of times I text my cast members to tell them I love them, especially Denai Guerrera, I'm always texting Ryan Kugler, the director of the Black Panther films, that I love him and asking him how he is. I'm not going to delay that anymore because tomorrow's not promised. She pauses. Since Chad died, I'm so afraid to lose people. Black Panther has made more than $1.3 billion at the box office, but its cultural significance has been even larger. Jamil Smith, writing for Time, said Black Panther would prove to Hollywood that African-American narratives have the power to generate profits from all audiences, which is just what it did. It must have been such an exhilarating atmosphere on the set of the first film, I say to write. It was. She smiles a huge, ecstatic smile. It was. What was it like to return for the sequel after Bozeman's death? It was tough. We had up and down days where you could tell people were grieving. We were able to be there for each other on set and be sensitive to the days when we didn't feel so good about being on set because you're missing someone. You're missing your brother. Grief was at my doorstep every day while I was filming. She says Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's book, Notes on Grief, has helped her. She describes how when you go through grief, nothing soothes the pain. You're just furious you've lost this person. All you want is them back. Grief comes like a thief in the night and it just stays there. And you have to deal with it. You can't kid yourself that you're okay today. I ask if she still lives by herself. I'm a nomad right now. I need a home. Has she got a partner? I'm very private, she says. We meet a few weeks before the release of Wakanda Forever, and she is sworn to secrecy about the plot. So we talk about some of her less mainstream, but equally influential, work. In 2020, she starred in Steve McQueen's brilliant docudrama Mangrove. Wright was scorching as Trinidadian Black Panther leader Althea jones lecointe one of a group of activists accused of riot and affray at a 1970 protest against police targeting of the Mangrove restaurant in Notting Hill. If she'd been around in the 70s, would she have been a panther? That's a good question. That's a good question. That's a good question. But not one she's going to answer. I don't know, because I wasn't around in the 70s, but I do know that when I played Althea, I connected to what they were fighting for. When she tells me she met Jones Lecointe, she sounds awestruck. She's amazing. I got to understand her as a woman, as a black woman. I love acting because I get to have my cake and eat it. One day I get to be a Black Panther in the 1970s, or I can be a Black Panther in Wakanda. At the end of 2020, with Wright on a career high, she found herself at the centre of a Twitter storm after sharing a video by a controversial pastor that contained anti-vax messages and transphobic remarks. The pastor has also suggested 
that LGBTQ plus people were invading the church and that people who attended Pride were held children. Her fans were devastated, not least because she had made a name for herself playing liberal, if not radical, parts. I tell her I want to talk about that tweet. Uh Uh-huh, she says, quietly. It obviously caused you stress because you deleted your Twitter account the next day, I say. Silence. At the time, she tweeted, If you don't conform to popular opinions but ask questions and think for yourself, you get cancelled. Did you think you were in danger of being cancelled? I feel it's something I experienced two years ago and I have, in a healthy way, moved on. And in a healthy way, I've apologised and deleted my Twitter. I just apologised for any hurt that was caused to anybody. People tend to see sharing on social media as an endorsement, I say. But did this misrepresent your values? That's exactly what my apology was. It was saying this is not me and I apologise. Because your fans might have assumed that by sharing the film you were a transphobic, homophobic, anti-vaxxer. Those are things that I am not, and I apologised, and I've moved on, she says, twitchily. Have you been vaccinated? I have apologised, and I have moved on, right, repeats. Next question. Thanks. She's right that we are living in a scarily unforgiving culture. One that could have seen her career finished for the single unfortunate share on social media. I'm glad it didn't. Wright seems a kind woman, as well as a rare acting talent with a keen eye for unusual projects. The Silent Twins, the third of her new films, is a perfect example of this. A couple of months before the infamous tweet, she launched her own production company, called 316, after the New Testament verse, John 316, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. She says that the production company will hopefully ensure she gets the chance to play the parts that fascinate her. Wright is one of the producers on The Silent Twins, based on the real story of Jennifer and June Gibbons, who talked to each other and nobody else. As little girls, they were creative and fun-loving, but they turned their back on the world after encountering its bigotry. What attracted her to their story? I felt that it was misunderstood. When I read their books and diaries, I realised how special and creative and adventurous they were, but they struggled to speak because they were ostracised and marginalised for being black. It's such an intense film. Did making it affect her and co-star Tamara Lawrence mentally? It definitely affected our mental health, she says. They were in Broadmoor for 11 years, so that messes with you, and you carry it in deep ways as an artist, but you try to channel it back into the film. Why does she think the twins refuse to talk to others? If we open our mouths and we have a speech impediment, and we have an accent, and we're black, and you're going to call us chocolate drop at school, and tell us we're black whatever, eventually we're not going to want to speak. Wright's got another meeting, so I start packing up. As I do, we talk about the type of films she hopes to make with her production company. I want to do things that make you think, 
and make you consider life in a better way, 100%. Does that mean, for example, tackling issues of discrimination and injustice? I would love our projects to make people feel impacted, connected and in some way bring about some kind of positive change. I can see her mind whirring. You said you know Ken Loach, she says, picking up on something I'd told her in our earlier conversation. Tell him I said hello. You know him too? No, you know him. Make the connection, man. We stand up, and we're looking over London Bridge from the top of the Shard. Does she get stopped much when she's out and about in London? Not really, she says. I just blend in. And I don't see myself the way other people see me. I don't see myself as Letitia Wright. I see myself as Tish, that girl from Tottenham. But you said earlier on that you were definitely Letitia, not Tish. She grins and admits Tish is what her friends call her and how she thinks of herself. What's the difference between Letitia and Tish, I ask? I guess Letitia is professional and on time and masters her schedule. And Tish? Tish is just trying to think of ways she can fit in time for her family, trying to feed herself on art and trying to remain grounded so Letitia can have a good foundation. That was Black Panther star Letitia Wright. Since Chad died, I'm so afraid to lose people by Simon Hattonstone. Read by Evelyn Miller. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles are read by Evelyn Miller and Toby Williams and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers were Max Sanderson and Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.